0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, coming to you from San Diego. And today on the New Books Network and New Books German Studies and New Books Environmental Studies, we'll be featuring Thomas Fleischmann, who is the author of Communist Pigs, An Animal History of East Germany's Rise and Fall, published in 2020 by the University of Washington Press and the Weyerhaeuser Environmental Books series. Welcome, Tom, to our podcast today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited about this interview um, to talk about the animal history of, of East Germany, a little bit about Thomas Fleischmann. He is an assistant professor of history at the University of Rochester, and he's a historian of modern Germany, environmental history, and animals. Thomas's work has won support from the program in Agrarian Studies at Yale University, the Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia at New York University, the Social Science Research Council, the Mellon Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, the German Academic Exchange Service de AAD, and the Fulbright Program. So we'll talk about communist pigs today, Tom. And I want to start with the first question. It's really about you. Why pigs and why (laughs) communist pigs? I'm dying to ask this question and I don't know another way to ask it, but how did you come to this topic?
0: Yeah, well, um, my interest in East Germany is really where it began because after college, I went to the former East Germany on a Fulbright. Uh, I taught in a gymnasium for a year and I lived really in the middle of nowhere in uh, the state of uh, Mecklenburg Vorpommern. And I lived in this little city called Gustrow, which is um, about 30 minutes from a city of note, Rostock. And, you know, this town had many of the of the problems that have uh, affected much of East Germany uh, since reunification, which is uh, this uh, skewing of the demographic composition of the city. So what you have is a lot of retirees, people in their 50s and 60s, and then a few young families with kids going to school, but very few people in their 20s and 30s. And when I moved there, I really didn't have much of a social life in this little city. And if I wanted to find people, I had to go to Rostock. And or Berlin and so I spent a lot of time on the train and on those train rides I would you know look out the window and what struck me almost immediately was uh, the the agricultural landscape around me and in in the springtime in particular they grow a lot of rapeseed in uh, in the former east and those flowers if you've ever seen them are this sort of fluorescent neon yellow and it really Uh, catches your eye, but it really shows the size of these fields, uh, which were enormous. And I was really struck by that at first. And then after a while, I started to realize I never saw anybody working outside. And, you know, when I got to graduate school and started thinking about East Germany, and, uh, you know, beginning to think about dissertation topics, I sort of was reminded of that and thought about well, what is the history of uh, this part of Germany? Why are, why were these fields so big? And then also why do I never see anybody working in it? So I started with this idea that I would write about the environmental history of agriculture, but you know I wasn't really sure what aspect until I started uh, digging in the archives. And when I went to Berlin and I was at the Bundesarchiv, you know I just started ordering files and then it struck me after a couple months of sitting there that I was just reading file after file about pigs. Pigs were everywhere, you know, problems with uh, feeding pigs, problems with dealing with pig manure and pig waste, uh, problems of distributing pork. And uh, the more I thought about it, it seemed like the pig was a a nice avenue for pursuing this history. You know um, that's how it started. Of course, um, I was then, you know, influenced by a lot of my readings in environmental history about how to use and think with animals uh, to uh, write about the past.
1: Yeah. And I want to bring us into into East Germany. So what was the pig population? I don't know if anyone has ever asked this question, but I, I mean, I, I think maybe it, as a demographic issue, could you talk a little bit about what the pig population was in the in the GDR and what it looked like? Well, if we're talking about the factory
0: farms, uh, uh, we'd probably be talking about anywhere between 10 and 13 million pigs. You know, it it fluctuates um, between the 60s and and 80s. And what my book really focuses on is this uh, push to really expand that program and really build it up. And so I usually say about 12 to 13 million uh, in the farms, but then you also have uh, any number of of pigs on private plots, which uh, there you know weren't necessarily counted, or I never found statistics that put them all in one place. But they are definitely not counted alongside the 13 million on the farms themselves. And then you have somewhere around, you know, this is also a a number that's hard to nail down. But the uh, wild boar population, if we really want to. Uh, Get specific is also growing exponentially over the course of the seventies. You know, going from the tens of thousands into the hundreds of thousands over a ten to fifteen year period.
1: Yeah, and I'm interested in the book. How you decided to start? Could could you talk about the writing process? I mean, you have Animal Farm, of course. You have Orwell, and there is an allegorical narrative and a story to East Germany. So, where? Where do you start in East Germany? Is it from below? Is it from the party? Is it from the farms? What hmm. where where's your where's your vantage? Let's say I would say that the
0: archival material um, led me to begin from the planning perspective, from both the econo- you know the economic administrators who are moving pigs and feed and manure around, so to speak, but also the party itself. Getting a getting a sense of their debates and how they thought about it. That's that's where it started. Uh, but I also used um, the agricultural periodicals and newspapers as a way to get at a more on the ground look um, to see what what farmers would have been reading and talking about. Um, and you know, using what are you know arguably you know they're state controlled, obviously they're um, part of the party apparatus, these uh, farming newspapers. And so they're certainly not giving a full picture, but there's definitely a way in which I found that you can read party newspapers to get a pretty good sense of what's going on. And what, what shocked me or not shocked me, what surprised me, I would say is the openness to which people were talking about problems in agriculture, uh, how to deal with shortages in feed, how to deal with uh, too much manure on your farm, how to deal with uh, you know, your contract partners who aren't fulfilling their obligations to your farm. All that stuff is being talked about in these official party um, publications and platforms. And I I thought that was a, a pretty useful way to get more of the bottom-up look.
1: Yeah. And I'm, cu- I'm really curious about this at a particular moment in time when the factory farms are, are set up in a, in a very sort of highly, um, maybe modern or high modern way, could you talk about the factory farms? I mean, when do they really, when do they start? Um, are they collective farms? Are they capitalist? What are they from when to when in this period of, of industrial revolution in East Germany?
0: Well, what I would say is that The, you know, the principles of industrialization and the industrial organization of farm space is prevalent from the start of the GDR, but it's being introduced onto uh, these newly formed collective farms uh, that, as I talk about, go through um, several rounds of reforming, uh, reconfiguration uh, from both the Soviet-led land reform in 1946, all the way through a decade of collectivization drives over the fifties and sixties. And they are really dealing with attempts to sort of, you know, bring machinery to the farm, make uh, new types of inputs like fertilizers and hybrid seeds available, um, introducing new machinery. Uh, That's all going on in the fifties and sixties. But what changes in the late sixties and seventies is the East Germans sort of decide that what they really need is to build these sort of exporting dynamos for animal flesh right. and really focus on these vertically integrated state-owned facilities. And, you know, as, I, as I, we can talk about as well as how those end up in East Germany and, and where they come from, uh, what they really become designed for is to uh, bring in uh, revenue from abroad uh, so that East Germany can produce enough pork to export it but also produce enough to supply uh, the capital city of Berlin and, and maybe the Soviet army that's uh, you know, encamped in East Germany as well. And so what you yeah, see and- is sort of a bifurcated system. This is sort of advanced right. technological one that gets priority. And then the collective farms are supposed to sort of absorb over time the lessons and demonstrations of the, of the model farms.
1: Yeah and, and that's that's really um what I want to talk to you about at, at some length um in the way that you set up the economic history as an environmental history and the import export problems if we can call them problems of East Germany um but but first could you tell our, our listeners how you designed the book so you've got um seven chapters I think uh, how and how and how did you how did you do that could you introduce us a little bit to your chapters and what you investigate Right. So,
0: you know, staying with the pig, I thought the pig would be a a useful way of of telling this story. And the reason why is I I kind of hit on that there were these three archetypes of pigs, an industrial pig, uh, what I call the garden pig, and a wild boar. And each one of them captures a different aspect of the industrialization of East German agriculture. Um, And so I decided to write chapters that would place each pig at at the center of the investigation. The industrial pig is definitely the major focus of the book. The first four chapters are about understanding how these Germans developed this industrial pig, uh, what it looked like, how it lived, how um, its production changed over the, you know, 40-year history of the GDR. But then I also wanted to look at these other pigs that are less appreciated, the uh, this garden pig that that I have uh, come up with is this sort of pig that sort of stands in as a star species for a whole host of subsistence practices that uh, undergirded the planned economy, that allowed uh, the planned economy to actually function and filled in the gaps when it faltered. And then the last one is this wild boar that I discovered was... Uh, exploding its population, causing all kinds of headaches. And I I thought of it as a useful way to think about ungulate uh, eruptions around the world today. If you deal with deer, you know, eating your garden or wild boars and, you know, parts of the United States as well in Europe, I thought this was a, what East Germany had was they had experienced this problem that I recognize now that most people talk about fairly regularly that I thought um, would be interesting to talk about. Uh, an earlier iteration from 50 years ago to you know, show that this problem isn't so new, and then to link it specifically to how the industrialization of agriculture remade the landscape to really support uh, the flourishing of wild boars.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm, I actually, I would start with the industrial pig and the complex. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Eberswalde in East Germany? So, what was this complex uh, as a as a form of new East German industrial agriculture, and what was it modeled on? Yeah. So
0: Eberswalde, I they couldn't have picked a better name for a city because uh, Aber means bore and Wald means Wald means forest, and so you know they picked the boar forest for their um, model uh, industrial vertically integrated facility. It was imported, I like to think of, uh, brought in from abroad. Um, I discovered that it was, uh, actually, uh, well, I didn't discover this. I, in my research, I found that it had been, um, constructed by the Yugoslavs who entered this deal in the 1960s with the East Germans that they would, uh, construct several, uh, vertically integrated factory farms to produce chicken, Chickens, pigs, cattle, but also milk and eggs and other uh, and dairy products. Uh, and through my research, I I figured that the Yugoslavs had largely built their facilities through uh, Western European and American expertise uh, that had been a central platform in the uh, Cold War strategy of the sort of um, uh, to sort of separate Yugoslavia from the Eastern Bloc uh, the Americans and Western Europeans tried to bring them in through economic incentives primarily. And I think the Yugoslavs then used that expertise and that training and sold it to the East Germans who established this, uh, factory farm in Eberswalde which had three major, uh, sections to it. One was a massive, uh, fodder complex that collected, um, grain, both from across East Germany, but also what was imported from abroad. And there they would process it into both a concentrate fodder, the sort of a highly uh, specialized and uh, scientifically determined uh, dietary supplement, and then the the large grain, grain shipments as well that they would feed to their pigs. Uh, the second facility was a breeding and fattening complex where they both reared sows and had them um, uh, um, inseminated and then uh, producing pigs. And then once they got the piglets out, they had to raise them to uh, uh, adulthood and fattening them the whole time. This is a facility that had raised about 200,000 pigs every five months. Uh, And then they would, you know, turn it over again. So about 400,000, maybe half a million pigs a year. And then the final complex was this advanced slaughterhouse that these Germans actually hired a West German firm called Berlin Consult to come into East Germany and build it. And in the contract, they they specified that it had to be turnkey ready. Mm. And uh, putting this all together, um, they required, for example, to import uh, specific. Uh, hybrid pigs for the factory farm from Yugoslavia. I, I start my first chapter with this uh, sort of crazy airlift of hogs from Ljubljana right. to East Berlin in 1970, where they had they coordinated this uh, basically chartered flight of that over four months flew 9,000 breeding hogs to East Berlin.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I actually see a lot of echoes of Rachel Carson in, in your book. So it's it's a, a socialist spring, but it, it's interesting to me because you're you're studying not just Eberswalde, which is close to the Polish border, right? But also the other complexes as well. Um, and I, I mean, I want to come back to a lot of uh, questions about the, the nature of the economy, but in, in particular, how does agribusiness work. So there, there's a specific kind of transformation. You you explore this through state planning and the convergence of communism and capitalism. Could you talk about the, the ideological element here? I mean, what, what is being transformed through the complex at Eberswalde and, and similar knockoffs? Yeah. So one of the,
0: the goals I set out for the book was to Uh, make East Germany seem less strange and bizarre to uh, people who don't know anything about the Eastern Bloc, state socialism, or communism during the Cold War. So, you know, a lot of the book does deal with questions that are rooted in the East German historiography and debates that have developed in that field since the 1990s. But I also wanted to write this book for U.S. environmental historians who had never actually considered Uh, the role of the Eastern Bloc beyond just sort of a footnote in the 20th century. And the way I wanted to demystify it and make it seem more familiar was to put into conversation with transformations in American agriculture in the post-war period. And what I found really Mm -hmm. striking was that the changes that were pursued in the name of agribusiness in the 1950s and 60s in the United States look an awful lot like what, what happened under collectivization in East Germany. You see the same types of demographic transitions. So, you know, oftentimes East Germany sort of, you know, infamously um, derided for uh, the construction of the Berlin Wall, which was created to stem the, uh, you know, the flight of East Germans from the country over the course of the 1950s. Um, but you could also make a case that, you know, Rural places like Iowa or, uh, you know, Ohio are experiencing similar levels of rural um, emigration in the same period. And a lot of this is due to changes in agriculture. Um, The another thing that you see that's happening both in Iowa and like in East Germany, for example, is you see uh, the decline in the number of overall farms in operation which is uh, always accompanied by a growing expansion in the scale of these farms. You see Mm. both in Iowa and East Germany, a decline in the number of uh, food uh, types of food and crops and animals that are being produced on each farm. And you see this sort of drive towards specialization. Uh, You see the rise of this idea that, you know, farms are producing for national markets or international markets rather than for, regional uh, provisioning and supplying. Uh, You see the adoption of the same types of technologies. Uh, And ultimately, what I saw at first was sort of this parallel development, where agribusiness and collectivization are occurring largely at the same time. And then what I saw was that in the 1970s, these systems actually converge and start to work together. Uh, and it's not just uh, by accident, but as a result of both, you know, speaking the same language about agriculture. You know, I always thought that if you took, you know, a manager from Aberswalde and you plopped him down at, you know, Hormel or Smithfield Foods, they would look at it and they'd go, oh, I know what this is. I know how this works. I can make it run.
1: Right, right. And, and I mean, there's an interesting moment of transition from Ulbrick to Honecker, you talk about pig bodies in the era of, of detente. And really, I, I have two questions for that. Um, so, what's the switch that happens in, in say, 1970 or 1971 in, in the global economy, how it affects East Germany with cheap capital and grain and oil? And how do you see that through a pig's body?
0: Great. Yeah. Um, so, for most, for the first 20 years, of East Germany's existence, that economic policy is revolving around sort of an autarkic organization of the economy. Everything will be produced within East Germany. Um, and they pursue that. They uh, try to, you know, grow enough grain to feed enough pigs, to feed enough cattle, to feed enough chickens, and then that these things should all balance out. Uh, all plant economies have this sort of, uh, this uh, fundamental idea that, inputs and outputs always have to balance out and the East Germans pursue this not just through collectivization in the fifties, uh, but also once the Berlin wall is built, um, East Germany's first, uh, leader Walter Ulbricht decides that he no longer, he feels a little more free to experiment in the economy. And he starts to see that collectivization isn't really going to produce, uh, by itself, uh, Enough of a leap forward in economic production in agriculture, and that's why he actually turns to the Yugoslavs and looks for expertise about industrialization from abroad. And he says, you know what, we can we'll build up our agricultural sector this way, and they import this factory farm, and it achieves some pretty um, striking uh, advances. You know, East Germany is producing more food than that region of Germany had produced prior to the second world war, you know, by right. the end of the sixties. Uh, certainly there's a material abundance that people didn't really know 20 years prior. And yet they are lagging behind uh, the West, uh, which is always held up. West Germany is always the foil that these Germans inherently compare themselves to. And in the late sixties, there starts to be on the geopolitical front uh, a growing move towards um, detente, or uh, as the West German Chancellor uh, Willy Brandt named it, uh, Ostpolitik, this sort of, uh, you know, um, moving away from Cold War competition to uh, collaboration. And while these geopolitical, you know, um, communiques are starting to happen, while they're starting to think about changing those relationships, uh, Western capitalism also starts to go through these massive transformations. These really important events happen almost simultaneously with uh, the culmination of detente, which is you have the end of Bretton Woods, uh, the the set of agreements that uh, basically set up uh, economic order in the wake of the Great Depression and the Second World War, you have uh, the oil crisis of 1973, and then you have in the middle there this sort of less appreciated but just as important event, which is became known as the the great great grain robbery, as it was named at the time, or the Russian grain deal of 1972, where the yeah. Russians managed to corner uh, the global market for wheat, and um, they did this through a series of negotiations with the United States and North American grain dealers. And uh, without anyone really knowing what was happening uh, before it was too late, we managed to uh, get this uh, grain at a very cheap price. And then uh, when the supplies went down in the West, the prices went up and then they sold it all back and made a huge windfall of profit. And this is one of the, the events that injects sort of instability into Western capitalism. And so... Because of these crises, the rules of Western capitalism changed. We have sort of uh, the return of finance capital, uh, the beginning of the deregulation of state and private banks, and mm-hmm. uh, and then of course the notorious era of stagflation, where you know interest rates and inf- inflation is actually outpacing interest rates. So the cost of borrowing was essentially free, uh, and this is mostly talked about. Uh, usually in terms of, you know, the uh, political crises of the 1970s, in the United States and Western Europe, uh, you know, the crisis of confidence uh, um, from Jimmy Carter uh, through uh, Callahan in uh, the UK. But then there's also what's less, con- and then there's also a lot of research about what happened in Latin America with, you know, the coup in Chile and uh, the junta in Argentina
1: yeah, uh, I mean, it, it it very easily, sorry, it very easily becomes a kind of transnational diplomatic history on on that kind of surface level, right? Yeah, but I mean, your angle is is completely interesting. I mean, it's different because you're getting at it the story from the perspective of the pigs, and and the meat meatification, as as you call it, and I think some others have called it, of the global diet. So. I mean, how how do you get at that perspective then through through your sources? I mean, are can you inter, can you interview a pig? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, yeah. So Tony Tony Weiss is the the person who coined the phrase "metification." This sort of idea that uh, the world's rural spaces are given over to grain and oilseed production and then surrounded by these little archipelagos of concentrated livestock facilities. And how I see that happening in the pig is that um, there's not just any pig will work in a factory farm. Uh, What the East Germans struggled with in the 60s was finding a pig that could not only survive, but flourish under the factory conditions of being you know, confined to one spot all day, being uh, sort of uh, you know, year-round farrowing, divided by age group, um, and move through the production cycle quickly. And what they found was that not all breeds did well. Mm-hmm. And what happens that accompanies the meatification of agricultural spaces is also a change in what types of pigs are being bred in the world. And you see the sort of moving away from the, the classical uh, breeds of, you know, the 19th and early 20th century, um, you know, your, your large types, uh, you know, they often see uh, these are the sort of the, the funny, the funny looking pigs that occasionally make their way to Twitter. And,
1: uh, mm. you know,
0: people describe like, look at, you know, what's the meme like, uh, you know, look at this unit, you know, some massive hog with uh, right. giant hams and a big head. Uh, but what you start to see instead is this move towards uh, selecting pigs that can do well under factory conditions, that have large litters, that can handle the stress of that environment, what which means putting on a lot of weight, uh, being resistant to disease. And uh, what you start to see is the East Germans move away from the classical breed's uh, of the early 20th century and start experimenting and importing hybrid varieties that are known for this characteristic they all co- describe as vigor. Mm-hmm. And so, this actually is when the East Germans start importing pigs from Yugoslavia. Those Yugoslav pigs probably came from uh, experimentations in Yugoslavia, but also imported, I think, very likely from Western Europe as well. Uh, in that, you sort of see this winnowing of. You know the the diversity of the of the pig gene pool in which they're all moving towards this particular type that survives in the factory farm and and that's what I found there for 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 that part of the story is the ways in which East German planners are describing how they need this new type of pig this hybrid pig and they develop their own uh, they actually develop uh, two kinds and the one that I write about in the book is called the Lycoma pig Lycoma stands for the three cities that helped develop it Leipzig. Kappus and Magdeburg. And what's really ironic is they developed this hybrid pig for the factory farm, and they're very happy about it. But then today, if you Google Lycoma pig, you'll see a lot of discussion of how this is an endangered heritage breed. And so it's mm-hmm. worked its way into sort of this sort of uh, pastoral romanticism uh, in Europe that this is one of the, the pigs that is disappearing and going away,
1: which I thought was... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I want to talk. I want to talk more about the party planners. So, <laughs> what? What? I mean, how do you read these economic crises through environmental history? You have the Grunberg Plan, which you talk about, and maybe you could introduce, and in something called the Manure Crisis. Um, <laughs> I think is a great title for a chapter on East German history, um, because there's there is a dream among these state planners, you know, Honecker with all of his hunting expeditions and everything and his collection of rifles, which you talk about. I mean, the, these are men who have a particular dream of state capitalism, but they're faced with mounting crises. And, and certainly in, in some ways, it begins on the collective farms. So mm-hmm. could, you, could, you, could you tell our listeners about that? I mean, what what are these crises and how do they escalate through the late 70s and early 80s? right uh, well from
0: Olrich to Honeker and all of the the cadre of, um, of, of their supporters who work in the regime, they have basic commitments to or they have basic beliefs about what state socialism should provide. It should provide uh, you know affordable housing. people should have jobs, they should have education, they should have right to health care and they also need an ac- access to cheap affordable food. And for Honecker in particular, he is sort of always worried about, in the back of his mind, a potential uprising. He, you know, he's in the regime during the notorious uh, uprising of June 17th, 1953, when there's a spontaneous um, protest against uh, increased price of uh, food and a a sort of downward pressure on wages leads to uh, an outbreak of unrest throughout the country that has to be put down violently by the government. And he always swore that he would never go back to a place where people were revolting against the regime because of the cost of living, particularly around food. Then, in the course of the nineteen seventies, you know, he assumes power in nineteen seventy-one as the leader of East Germany. There are a number of protests, uh, particularly in Poland, around the price of bread and food. And that's always in the back of his mind, and. Uh, So he keeps putting, uh, making it a priority for the regime to uh, produce as much food, particularly pork, bread, and butter as possible to keep uh, people happy. And so he does that um, uh, and he makes that the priority itself. And because that's the priority, there are all these knock-on effects of this relentless drive to industrialization that will provide the cheap food itself. And so one of the knock-on effects is this manure crisis, which is that concentrating pigs in facilities like this uh, also produces a particular kind of waste that is, I'm not sure if our listeners want to read about it or hear about it, but maybe I'll just talk a (laughs) a little bit about
1: it. Describe it in great detail, please. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, what Uh happens is, uh, you know, traditionally when you had pigs in a, you know, you'd have, you know... 20 pigs, 50 pigs in a barn. And a, and a farmer could traditionally deal with their waste by mixing it with dry matter, you know, straw, maybe silage from the fields, anything that you had on hand, you could mix with it and then render that into usable fertilizer. You know, a traditional farmer will always talk about it as, you know, gold, uh, really important to cultivate good manure. And I in, in the farming periodicals, you still see these people you know, farmers writing into the newspaper and talking about how manure is gold, we have to protect it, you have to treat it correctly. But what's being missed and not accounted for by planners and East German farmers themselves is that when they moved to confinement, and keeping pigs not only confined indoors year round, but also in greater and greater numbers was that uh, the, the nature of their manure itself changed, it became much more toxic, because they would place them in these Long barns that had these concrete spalted flooring and underneath it had these canals or channels that would collect any wet material that fell through. And then that would be pumped out into um, a lagoon that was outside the facility and there it would be, you know, encouraged to settle and, um, and, 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 and the sedimentation would happen, and so the heavy stuff would fall to the bottom, and the, the liquid stuff would stay at the top and then be drained off into a lower lagoon. But the problem with that is that in, the, in this collection of massive amounts of pig manure without any dry material in it, uh, it sort of encouraged anaerobic respiration amongst microorganisms mixed into the manure uh, and that releases all kinds of toxic gases that are poisonous to animals and people, but also um, becomes incredibly toxic to the environment itself. And anytime there was heavy rainstorm or spring flooding or what happened increasingly was that the uh, lagoons themselves would fill up, they would have nowhere to put the manure. And so it started being dumped in the woods or applied on fields that didn't need any more manure applied to them. And so it sort of saturates the soil and seeps into the watershed and uh, starts to poison the drinking water itself. I have a large part of the this chapter on the manure crisis where you know East Germany is having whole cities that need to have bottled water brought in because there are rising cases of this condition called blue baby syndrome where uh you know babies turn blue because uh uh there's you know nitrates in in uh in the drinking water and it's getting into the baby's bloodstream and it's inhibiting the uh take up of oxygen it also you know the manure is also causing spikes in cancer and other kinds of bad uh illnesses that's and right
1: yeah yeah this
0: is going on throughout the you know it's it's really building over the course of the 70s into the 80s and the regime sees it as a crisis but they can't you know take their foot off the pedal because they're balancing this need to keep cheap food and cheap pork available for the public at all times but it's also being balanced by this need to continue to export pork abroad that actually uh the East Germans decide they just cannot default on their loans to the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it means at, you know, having to cut back on supplies of pork to its people. So there's this fight within the regime between people who say, we, you know, we have to keep producing pork for the populace and the, the rest are saying, no, 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 we have to prioritize Western exports. Meanwhile, this whole system itself is poisoning people at a, at an alarming rate. It was by far the worst, uh Worst uh, drinking
1: water problem in all of Europe at that time, even by the East Germans own admission. Were were you finding, um, Tom? This these sources in in the party archive. Where, where what kind of sources? Where you where you in in where were you finding the stories of pollution pollution and the export business? So this may be
0: surprising to uh, non-experts, but you know the East Germans, while they had a terrible environmental record, actually established a Ministry of Environmental Protection uh, fairly early. I believe it was established in 1970 or 71. And part of what they're doing is collecting information about drinking water. And water contamination. It's there from the beginning. Uh, I think it's surprising because I think peop- most people would assume that the communist regimes had no interest in paying attention to what's happening to their environment, which actually isn't true. It's yeah. just that um, the political pressure upon the regime, they're not as responsive to it, right? They don't have to respond in the same way that Western governments do but that doesn't mean they aren't paying attention to it. And so I found uh, several confidential reports sent to the uh, Politburo of the regime about this crisis. And uh, I distinctly remember one report in particular, it was 150 pages of detailed studies of where the drinking water was really bad, what they were doing to fight it. And what's, you know, the, I wouldn't say the tragedy, but there's, there is a recognition inside the regime itself. This is unsustainable. It's incredibly costly to have to, you know, dig new wells for towns to replace water lines, to import drinking water. Uh, You know, it's starting to eat up, you know, most of the, like almost the entire drinking water budget for all of East Germany is being eaten up by, you know, emergency water deliveries and, and the like. And so you see them saying we have to make a big change. It's clearly coming from agriculture and agricultural runoff from our livestock facilities, but also from the fields themselves that are over-applicated with, uh, you know, not just chemical fertilizer, but pig manure. Uh, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they say like, you know, it's, it's impossible to how we have to reckon with how to balance producing enough food for people at the same time. And, you know, they never actually come up with a solution, obviously, because,
1: uh, you know, a revolution happens and uh, yeah. uh, there's no more East Germany. Well, that's the perfect segue to what I want to ask about 1989 and the Socialist Unity Party, because I I, I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by your stories of continuity in, in the Landeskultur, Um, You know, I mean, it goes certainly back to the idea of the forest in German romantic literature and such. And there are all these uncanny um, parallels in the conservationism or conservationist movement and, say, the Green Movement today, uh, which I think come as revelations in your book. So, I mean, how do you how do you take the story through with all of these various crises to 1989, what what's the connection there in the story of East Germany? Is it an allegorical connection, like, or or, or something something more?
0: Um, so the what I found really striking was that there is in the early 80s the a lot of the dissent movement and early organization from the late 70s. You know, you know, initially starts as opposition to nuclear uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, from the, the late 60s and 70s. And then uh, by the late 70s, it starts to transition to pollution in particular. Uh, a lot of the focus is on um, uh, brown coal or lignite, the burning of this cheap fuel uh, mm. that is blackening uh, buildings. It's, you know, it's largely responsible for that uh, environmental reputation of the GDR as well. And so some of the early organizing is around that. But what there there's also organizing around manure pollution. Now I don't want to give the impression that uh, 1989 is driven primarily by the environmental groups. But what I would say is that because you know participation is pretty small, like what you see is, you know, right. we're talking hundreds of people at most organizing in the early 80s. But it's important because it provides both a place, a platform and sort of um, uh, a discourse with which uh, uh, broader critiques of the regime uh, are articulated and developed over the course of the 80s. So by 1988, we have almost a decade of organizing around environmental pollution in East Germany and when the revolution comes in 89, it's rather sudden, this flourishing uh, that is you know, informed a lot by what's happening you know, in Hungary, in, uh, in Poland, and then you know, also what's starting to happen in Czechoslovakia. So it's importing a lot of that discussion about uh, you know, human rights, uh, but it's also um, being mixed with the environmental critique, and you honestly can't have one without the other. And by the time 89 rolls around, for me, what I saw was that a lot of East Germans then came to understand the pollution as emblematic of the overall failure of the regime and emblematic of its failures in every other part of, of society.
1: I, I'm also curious to hear your interpretation of the state Um, elite. So I mean, what I'm talking about is the Communist Party elites, the Socialist Unity Party. So if you're an ordinary citizen in East Germany, and I don't know if there's any kind of, um, you know, correct version of saying ordinary, but certainly people have memories of the pork shortages and standing in line. So things like butter and sugar and pork are are scarce, right, through the entire 80s. And still the Agricultural planners are working in this kind of giant, large-scale industrial way, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are production quotas right up to the very end. So, I mean, how how do citizens then interpret the actions of the Politburo? Is is it just something that's unchanging or what what is it? I would say that, well, first I'd say that the
0: shortages are periodic. You know, they, they ebb and flow. Uh, they're also geographically uh, dispersed. Uh, and, you know, just, uh, you know, I talk a lot about this particular, I have a whole chapter about this uh, poor crisis in 82, where uh, right. this sort of cascade of shortages happens. But what, what I thought was interesting was the way in which a shortage in one part of the economy or a disruption in production in one part just ripples to other parts of the economy. And then planners have to adjust the movement of materials around the country. And they're not only adjusting to anticipate shortages from the production side, but they come to realize that shortages induce changes in consumer behaviors, like where people shop and what they're shopping for moves Mm -hmm. around cities in different regions. And so they're constantly, you know, running to plug in the gaps um, as people's behaviors change. So, for example, uh, it's a perfect example is, you know, in 82, you know, there's a shortage uh, of pork. Uh, The East Germans are always prioritizing East Berlin because it's the tourist hub, if you will, of, you know, it's the city that most Westerners visit in the 80s. And they're worried that Westerners are going to see East Germans queuing up for food. And Mm -hmm. so because they're worried about that, they always make sure that when there's a shortage, they supply the center of East Berlin with everything it needs. But every East German knows this as well. So when periodic shortages show up on the, you know, in the exurbs or the suburbs of Berlin, you know, uh, people will go then shop in the center of Berlin. Because that's – they know that's where the pork yeah, yeah. will be more plentiful, which means that there's a rush on, on particular stores, which leads to lines anyway. And then the, East, you know, the Politburo starts to hang its head and goes, oh my god, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but what you see in the – there are these petitions or Eingaben uh, that a lot of historians have used to write about East Germany uh, where people would write to the regime and basically complain. They'd complain about – various things were wrong. It'd be everything from personal things like you know, my father's retiring, he worked in this factory for 40 years. I think he deserves a trabant. Could you you know move him up in the queue so he can have a trabant? But then you also find people being like, uh, you have people complaining about the shortages themselves and you see in the the petitions people are conscious and aware, that exports abroad are being prioritized. And so they might say, you know, why are we exporting pork? We should be extending, you know, mopeds and
1: and lumber
0: is like what (laughs) I I found one person saying. Um, And so there is this sense amongst, um, you know, for lack of a better term, everyday East Germans, that the regime has its priorities and the people aren't always at the top of it. And then this gets sort of, exacerbated in the late 80s by, you know, uh, of course, there's the privilege of, of, of hunting, which I talk about in the book, and we can talk about that more. But then there's also, you know, the East German Politburo lives in its own suburban settlement, this neighborhood called Vonlitz, uh, which the yeah. East Germans referred to sort of uh, humorously as Volvograd. And because everyone drove a <laughs> Volvo and the Volvo limousines that came out of there. Could, could you,
1: could you talk, could you talk about that? I mean, it, it also the impression of Hanukkah, I really, I mean, there, there's this party elite that comes out of the animal animal farm allegory, please. Yeah. I mean, uh,
0: so, um, you know, they are of course privileged. They could get whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, by the late eighties, they're importing, you know, foreign cigarettes. Um, uh, I know, uh, Gerhard Klunenberg, who was the economic, uh, the chief planner, uh, he had he had diabetes. And over the course of the 80s, he had one leg amputated and then the other. And he had his leg imported from uh, a, a Japanese company built his, uh, his leg. And then he had, you know, they had um, for their hunting, I believe they had some Land Rovers and he had, you know, they had every kind of gun they wanted. But then You know, some some East German Politburo members collected all the TV, you know, could have like 10 color TVs. Um, And so you definitely get the sense that there's a a privileged class uh, being close to the party. Right. Um, I wouldn't, of course, you know, it's nothing like the economic stratification we're experiencing today. It almost seems humorous and quaint in Mm. retrospect, but it is powerful politically when people realize that the regime is getting everything it wants when it wants it. And most people aren't, um, yeah. Honecker himself, what I found really striking was the ways in which by the 1980s, uh, the East German regime came to find common cause and even, uh, came to develop, you know, personal, uh, feelings towards, uh, members of, uh, the CDU uh, Christian Democratic Governing Coalition led by Helmut Kohl. Um, you know, the, the most infamous case of, is, of course, uh, Franz Josef Strauss, who is this Bavarian minister. He was notorious. He would left government uh, in the 19, uh, early 60s because of a spying scandal with Der Spiegel. He has this reputation as an arch anti-communist throughout this period. And yet he's the one in the early 80s who organizes after the poor crisis of 82, the East German state is rescued by a billion mark uh, emergency loan from the West German government. And it is brokered by and large by Franz Josef Strauss. And uh, because of that deal, the East Germans are able to stave off for a while economic collapse while maintaining their export industry. And Mm -hmm. you start to see that the, you know, the, the, the CDU anti-communists and the East German populace start to really like each other. You know, the East Germans really like how the, uh, uh, or rather, sorry, the CDU likes that the East Germans are, you know, against hippies, uh, you know, uh, don't tolerate long hair, uh, and the, the, and the, the East German regime sort of likes the, you know the uh, stinginess uh, of their West German counterparts and they found that they had a lot in common and so i kind of i used the sort of the last chapter of animal farm as a way to sort of bring this home which is that you know the 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 east german regime and the and the west german conservatives actually came to like each other quite a bit and that reminded me of the end of animal farm which is when the the pigs now are walking on two legs and they're drinking whiskey (laughs) and they're dressing in human clothes and they have their, their former enemies, uh, Pilkington and, and his, uh, and his men come over and they celebrate and toast each other. Uh, and in the last very last line of the book, the other farm animals are looking through the window of this, uh, of this dinner party where the pigs and the men are drinking together and they're toasting one another And they go from toasting how much they have in common to devolving into a drunken brawl. And the last line of Animal Farm is, of course, you know, the animals look from pig to man, from man to pig, and pig to man again, and neither could say which was which. That's
1: right. And on that note, I mean, I'd really like to get your takeaway points, because... um, you have in your epilogue, which I, uh, afterward, which I hope people will read, a, a commentary on the legacy of this. And in some ways, it's it's like the erasure of the pig from Berlin. You don't find too many pigs left in, in Berlin. And mm-hmm. the, the framing now in, in German, in terms of bio, everything, right? Bio, bio, mm-hmm. um, is, I think, really important to understanding the environmental history, not just in Germany, but elsewhere. So my last question for you, um, Tom, is, is if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, the takeaway points from your book for environmentalists and perhaps recommend some other books to our listeners. Sure. Yeah. I think the f- major, one of the
0: takeaways I would say is that East Germany has been totally erased from the uh, post-unification history of Germany. Uh, and yet its legacy is still there. You know, what, Germany is known for today, as Frank Okuter has said is uh, in his book, uh, The Greenest Nation, which is that Germany has this international reputation as the most environmentally conscious, the doing the most about climate change. And yet a lot of that legacy, it dates back to reunification and by and large how the West saw the problems in the East and how it was West Germany's job to clean up the East. What is less talked about, for example, is the ways in which Reunified Germany's environmental record is really balanced on the back of the rapid deindustrialization of East Germany, which is that, you know, the federal Republic of Germany achieved these really striking drops in carbon emissions in the 1990s. But what's not talked about is that was basically won at the cost of basically shuttering all of East Germany's factories and power plants. Mm-hmm. And, um, What's more is that as East Germany was derided in 89 and 90 and 91 for being this ecological outlaw, uh, particularly for manure pollution, but also brown coal uh, and the burning of lignite, is that a lot of those things are still going on today. And not only that, but they're actually worse. So, uh, you know, livestock facilities are even larger today. Um, you know, the factory farm of Eberswalde now seems, seems quaint. You know, mm-hmm. in the '70s, it was the largest in the world. Today, it's it's next yeah. to nothing. Um, uh, I'd also say that um, there's also, you know, there. If you pay attention to Germany as well, there's a lot of fights today about you know, brown coal has become the sort of replacement fuel as East Germany has shuttered its nuclear facilities. It's become the sort of fill-in uh, fuel source. Um, uh, more recently, uh, during the um, 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 the the the, uh, the shuttering of, of of nuclear power in Germany today. So I you know I want to encourage readers to think about the ways in which, East, in which East Germany has created these deep structures in the both politics but also the environment and land of of reunified Germany. That's great,
1: great. Thank you so much. Um, so we've been speaking with Thomas Fleischmann, who is the author of. Communist Pigs, An Animal History of East Germany's Rise and Fall. This is published by the University of Washington Press 2020 by the Weyerhaeuser Environmental Books Series. This is an excellent series for anyone interested in environmental studies and environmental history. I want to thank you, Tom, for joining us on the New Books Network podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a, a dream of
0: mine since I was walking my dog around Park Slope in 2010.
1: So. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you.